Hello everyone, welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I have been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I've been intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have Emiliano on the show today to talk about his story and his company. Emiliano, can you please tell us about yourself and the company? Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you hosting me. And my company is called Trussell. And what we do is we work in the identity entitlement space. And really, how do we minimize that attack surface? I think a lot of people are becoming aware of the issue with over-entitlement, over-permissioning of users across a variety of SaaS applications. And what we do is that we help you monitor, identify those identities, and help you mitigate and reduce that risk. So that's the space that we're working in. Very short and to the point. And it's interesting because identity pretty much become the new perimeter, according to many people. And I agree with this. I myself spent number of years as a firewall engineer, and we always did rules based on source, based on your network. And when the next-gen firewalls came, oh, I can put a user so you can go anywhere you want and we will still have the policy. And I absolutely agree with you about entitlement because I see people moving from place to place in the company, people changing jobs. And when you ask them, hey, what's happening with your permissions? Oh, it's just move. Like, why are you not adjust anything? And unfortunately, many of the attacks come from the idea, oh, I got your user and I change what you can do. Or even the latest one is I remove your MFA. We're not going to go to the details about what happens there, but I think everybody knows what you're talking about. So this is great. I like identity. We're not going to go deep on the technology, maybe in a different episode, or everybody can go to your website. But I do want to understand how someone had the idea on what triggered in their mind to come and start a company to solve this problem. That's a great question. So I'm going to have to turn the clock back a little bit. And when I moved to California around 15 years ago, I joined a company that at that point was called Sashore that we eventually renamed to Okta. So I was working in the identity space for a very long time, really in the authentication authorization space, and really was able to get a front row seat of that change. And and what that change was like really going from on-prem to SaaS applications, right? And when you're talking about your experience with firewalls, a lot of this was breaking out of the network and all of a sudden people were going and using things like Salesforce, Workday, all these different vertical companies that were taking those solutions that were traditionally run on-prem and moving them out to the cloud. So with Okta, what we started doing is, you know, helping people manage those identities. And really what we leaned on were standards like SAML for single sign-on and eventually things like SKIM for user provisioning and management. So I was there for a couple of years and then I, I moved around a little bit, ended up at Splunk for a couple of years. And after Splunk, I started a company called Cytel, where we were working on identity for workloads. And what that really was, is how do you give a workload running in a heterogeneous environment an ID? And what the ID was a certificate, 
because, you know, the big problem with certificates is how do you mint them? How do you rotate them? How do you manage those? So we came up with a standard called Spiffy and an implementation called Spire. And we got that standard into the CNCF. So worked on open source for a couple of years, right? That was a lot of fun, the community building, great experience. And eventually, Cytel was acquired by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. I was there for a while. And somebody that I worked with in the community was starting a company, which was Trussell. And we were talking about it. And it was really interesting, the problem that he was going after. Because I was so familiar with the identity problem from my time at Okta and since then on working in identity and security, that... A lot of solutions, they stop at the front door, right? If you think about access as keys to a house, they really just give you the ability to enter the house, right? They don't help you manage to get into the specific room. And as things have gotten more complicated, really the ability to manage where you go and for how long has become critical, right? Because of compliance, handoffs, when let's say an account is opened up by a company who gets access to that for how long, a lot of times there's a life cycle to this. You have pre-sales, then it goes to post-sales. It goes to engineers that have to troubleshoot a customer. And what you end up seeing is with this complexity of managing all of these resources, A lot of companies just are using standing access to everything, where it is hard to have that visibility and understand all these different cloud environment and application environments. And that's where I saw the opportunity. And that's what we worked on. So this is a good idea. And I think the problem in the industry is that we all have ideas every day. Yes. The magic is how do you take an idea, smart people, and convert it to business and help people generate money. And while... Helping people is very important. If you know that you can generate money, you'll be able to help people as well. So what's the next? You have an idea. You have people as the founders. You guys going, raising money, implementing some kind of uh, beta alpha version. Yes. We went out. We raised some capital. Talked to a lot of customers. And I think that the big thing that, you know, as a technical founder, as an engineer, right? A lot of us aren't exposed to other parts of the company, right? So you're always, you always think that, hey, if I build a solution, I put up a website, people will just find me. They will figure out, wow, this is brilliant. We're going to use this. This will help us. And I think the last stat I heard is as of right now, and don't quote me, there's about 8,000 cybersecurity companies out there. There is so much noise, so much stuff out there, which is crazy. And what you have to figure out is the technology part is hard, right? Like that we understand, but the sales and marketing side, like how do you tell your story? How do I tell a story to a customer and explain, hey, this is your problem, right? In a concise way and help them understand that we could help them do that. Because what ends up happening is You talk to a lot of companies and it's not that there is a competitor that does what you're doing. It's that they have a solution in-house that does something similar that is maintained by people. And it's hard to explain to people or companies, what is your business? Do you want to maintain this or do you want to buy this off the shelf with a team that just does this all day? Right. So you bring in a couple of interesting points. I'm actually recommending... Stealth company is the one I'm advising talking to. Hire a marketing person right away. If you think you need to develop a solution, 
you need, you need to have a marketing person three months before yes. because if you're not going to have a digital idea that you're going to have an idea and um, digital presence actually correctly. Now, you mentioned that you went and raised money almost like you went and made, and made a matter, the one we spoke about before recording. It sounds very easy, but if you talk to a lot of companies, they're struggling to raise money. Yes. So what helped you to raise money? And also you mentioned about talking to many people. So yes. let's talk about the raising part. Is this because you knew people in the industry? I know people, but it is networking. It is talking to people. It is storytelling, right? A lot of people think that you just write code and that's a simple part. And again, my experience is in SaaS enterprise software. With SaaS Enterprise, a lot of this is the preparation when you tell your story, right? And I think that's the hard part that a lot of founders and technical founders don't understand, right? That is this a technical is, story or it's a business story? Because it's you... a business, it, it's a story. It's a story, technical or business. It is a story that you're telling, right? So you have to tell a story to an investor. That's a certain way that you tell a story and you have to tell a story to a customer. And it's not that you're lying or making stuff up. It's that you have to convey something to them. If you think about investors are talking to so many people, right? I don't know how many hundreds of people are pitching these folks. And what I learned from my last company too, where I had to go out and give talks at conferences, what we would do is that we would practice. We would record our talks and then we would critique them and we would time them. And it was, how long am I taking on each slide? How am I talking? How am I presenting? And I think that sort of preparation and practice, a lot of people don't see that and don't understand that, right? It's funny because when you hear a lot of these conferences or, or conversations, people are like, oh my God, this was, it was so good. It, it just seems like it just flowed. But because they practiced it for hours, right? And worked with a team and got feedback. And you have to learn how to talk in public and convey things and sound engaged and have energy, right? Because it's bizarre. Like the things that you'll hear from investors, it's, I didn't like that guy because I don't know, he was low energy or he just didn't convince me. And it's not even about so you, the, yeah, You're the talking technology. right now and your eyes yeah. almost let up. You're so mm -hmm. passionate about what you're talking about. And you can yeah. feel it across the screen. And I totally yeah. agree with you. I think the entire idea of soft skills becomes so important. Yeah. And because we, a lot of the time, need to present over Zoom, Teams, whatever the media is there. So we lose this interaction. And we need yeah. to be so to the point, so concise, that people will actually want to focus and stay with us and not go look on the other screen and right. say, yes, we're going to do look at our their stuff. Phone. Yes. Yeah, no, it's critical. And I think for a lot of technical founders, that's hard to understand. And it feels fake, but it's not. It's like when we talk about technology and things, right? There's a certain way that we convey it and explain it between engineers, right? And you could tell who's a bullshitter, right? Or is this guy for real? Did he even do this? Does he even understand how the whole life cycle of how we deploy and all of this and how we're testing, right? And I think when you're telling a story too, like I received uh, very powerful feedback about what I was doing wrong. And you either are going to say, 
They don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to keep doing it my way. I'm right. Or you're going to take that feedback and improve and practice and work at it, right? Because when you're talking to investors, they're looking at you and saying, is this person a leader? Can this person build a team around him and attract the right people? Or are we just wasting our money? Because at the beginning, what they're betting on is you. You're not coming in the beginning and saying, hey, I have this cash flow. I have all these customers. This is how long it takes me to close a deal, right? All the stats and numbers that you have later on that you could go out and and present to people to say how your company's functioning. In the beginning, it's just you and your co-founders, right? And they're going to look at you and, and judge you. And it's hard for people to accept that and understand that. But you're trying to say, hey, do I have the resilience to do this, right? Is this person going to fold as soon as things get tough? Or is am I betting on this person and he's going to bring this through, right? Through the hard times and the good times. And I think that's something that they're judging you on. And I can't even tell you the number of people that I talked to and by how many people I got rejected. It was very eye-opening because it was close to 80 and it was pretty, pretty humbling to do that. Great. So first of all, I'm happy you guys learned a lot and understand the feedback and moved on. So you now have the money. You talk to many people about the idea. So you did a validation of the idea. I hope, did you got any design customers when you're talking to people? We did. I think that's a critical part too. I think this is another piece of advice for people is that you have to be always talking and listening to customers. Like what is their pain point? What is difficult? right? You can't just be in the background, just assuming that someone's taking care of that and figuring things out. You really have to be understanding how people are using your product. And for the most part, also you have to dog food your product, use it yourself. That was something that I learned firsthand at Okta, where we were using it all the time and you're living in it and you're feeling it like, oh, this is so annoying. Why am I doing four clicks to do this? And it kind of makes you understand and feel the pain of the person using it, right? Because if you don't see that, you become numb to it. And I think that's another critical thing that you engage with the design partners, have regular meetings with them, get their feedback, and then really prioritize what you're hearing. Because the market will tell you if you're going in the right direction or not. And I think also that's the same thing as when you're going out and pitching your company, that if I'm talking to design partners and I'm talking to people and nobody wants to use it and everybody thinks it's bad, then it's bad. It's like you're either too early or too late. So I think that's another thing. You have to be receptive to what you're hearing. And it's not that we have our main thesis and we're like snaking along to the end point that we want, but making all of those moves we wanted to help us get to our end point you have money you have some design partners are you hiring people in this state yes yes we hired we, we built the team we have a couple of folks that work with us in argentina from some people that i've known for a while and then we're remote first so we have the rest of the team in the states really all over so there's only two of us in california and then the rest are all over the country great when you hire new people I'm sure culture was important. You don't want yes. the douchebags or people that are egocentric. Yeah. How does this happen? Did you sit down with your partner, created a culture, 
Did you write, hey, you cannot create culture, you adapt. Did you write some principles of what's important for the company? Tell me about this part of thinking, who do you want to come, what type of people? Yeah, no, definitely I did this and I'm just trying to pull up, I have my list of the culture, but I'll, I'll give nice. you some of the highlights that number one is that everybody works on the product. There's nobody that works at Trussell that doesn't work on the product. Because what in a lot of companies and what I would have seen firsthand is that people will say, hey, unless you're building this piece of code or you're working on this module or on this service or whatever, that's the important people. Those are the people in the ivory tower. Those are the people that matter. Everything else is just supporting that. And I've seen cases where documentation was ignored or nobody cared. But to me, if I cannot read the docs, if I cannot figure out how to use your product, it doesn't matter that you have the smartest person that wrote the best algorithm ever to sort or to do whatever on the background. It did not even get into that. So that's been a big tenant of us is that everybody and everything's important. If the documentation sucks, the product sucks. If when you're going into it and you can't figure out how to use it, it sucks. So it is critical for us to iterate on that with usability, UI, UX, and everything. That's why it's hard. You have to make sure everything is in sync along with your story and how you're telling it, but can people figure out how to use this thing? And is it concise? And we don't do the best job all the time, but it's always front and center of my mind. So that's a big thing that everybody is working on the product. Another big thing is, and this kind of came out of my experience working in a lot of tech companies is we don't do meta work. I've seen it where someone's like, hey, I want to write my own database <laughs> as, a, as a computer science project. It's like that. We don't need that, right? There's stuff we could get off the shelf or we could get this from an open source library. Don't complicate it. Just get it off the shelf. There's open source communities. If you want to change something, you can contribute to that community and then use it and participate in that. And really working at Cytel and Spire and Spiffy and seeing that in action, how that happens, that's a huge thing because I only have so much money. I only have so much resources and I cannot have somebody create a new computer language. Open source is nice, but it also come as a bit of a, I don't want to say vulnerability, but potential pitfalls. What if there is a new version of upgrade? Maybe there's a vulnerability there. Maybe somebody acquired them. Is this just a risk management for you or how do you approach this part? Yeah, it is risk management. I think that companies need a security posture. They have to scan their software. They have to scan their libraries, update them. Because a lot of people, what you'll see is they have stale libraries with exploits and they're not upgrading them or updating them. It's not even, you know, at this point, it depends on the language. You're bringing in so many open source libraries that you have to be aware of them. And GitHub, and there's tools out there that let you scan all the dependencies to make sure that you're up to date. But that has to be part of your culture, that you're aware of it. And there are certain projects, especially in the CNCF, because when we were there, we did a security audit. A lot of the projects there will do audits from a committee within the organization because you have big users that are using some of these projects, right? You want to look for libraries that are healthy and being used, right? And I think when we go and do that, and there are four choices that do something, and one of them has a rich community, we'll go with that. Or that's what I would recommend, right? You don't want to go with something that's abandoned because there's going to be issues there. So I think it's an interactive, proactive process that you have to engage in. 
In what point you realize you're in the right direction? That the idea is correct and you don't need to pivot anywhere else? When somebody's willing to give you money for it. <laughs> that's really, that's where you start realizing that you're going in the right direction, where you start talking to customers and it clicks. And right? they're like, okay, we have that problem. That is my pain point. This is something that I need today. People say, do you want to be a vitamin or a painkiller, right? Like a vitamin is a nice to have, a painkiller you have to have because you need it today. It's going to help your business. It's going to help you save money. It's going to help you make money. It's going to help you, your process, the time people are spending on things and they could see the value in it. I think when you start seeing that, you know that you have product market fit and you have traction. I think that's a critical thing because when I started this, you'd always hear people say product market fit and you just thought like that was a BS term and you're like, oh, whatever. We just have to have this product work, but work isn't good enough, right? Who cares if it works if nobody wants to use it? When people start seeing it and it's not for one, for just a couple of design partners, but you could go out there, tell the story, synthesize it. And if I could have somebody that is joining us, let's say in the sales team, and we could give them, here's the script, this is what we say, here's our story. And they could take that and somebody hears that and says, yes, that helps me. That's where you know that you've hit your mark. Because I could always tell the story and talk for five hours about it, but I can't clone myself. So if I could make it concise and people can explain it and tell it, that's where you know that you've reached uh, a good thing. Yeah, you brought an important part. As a founder, you have to do sales. In the beginning, at one point, it's probably, you mentioned sales, it's hard to let go of the baby. And you're a technical founder. So tell me about how hard is for a technical founder to be a salesperson and how hard is to let go and let other people sell your baby? No, it's critical to do sales. I would say it's a part as a founder that you don't realize how complicated it is and how involved it is. We're shielded from all of that. But there's a whole industry on touch points. Who do I call? Who do I reach out to? What do I say? Are they clicking on it? Are they reading it? Are they looking at it? Is there interest? And you're going out and pitching it, but there's a certain art to it that I think a lot of engineers don't appreciate. And sales is under great pressure to sell. And it's the lifeblood of a company. Because again, we're always thinking about engineering and algorithms and all of that. But end of the day, where it's a for-profit business, where we are building enterprise softwares that are going to help companies and we're going to make them money or save them money, right? But there's a value that they have. So being able for them to understand that and buy it and that whole process, that's critical. Would it hard for you to transition to be more serious engineering? It is hard. I think one of the big things you want to make sure is that as a founder, sometimes you're selling a lot of vision to investors and you're selling like, hey, this is where we're going to be. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're building. But customers, they only care about what's there today. They want to know where you're going, but can you help me today? And I think that being able to we like to say that we have to sell the turnips that we have on the cart today. We can't sell next year's crop of turnips. We got to sell those. We got to sell what we have on the cart today. Otherwise, we, we're not going to sell anything. 
Because if someone says, that's great, talk to me in a year, it's that we're trying to sell this now, right? We've built something. We've been thinking about this for two, three years, building it, spending every day perfecting this. We could help you today. And I think that's the power and that's the realization you have to see. So for me, it's been a lot of not doing so much future selling and vision. How do you deal with task management? There's a lot of tasks. Can you imagine you guys are not physically in the same place? Yeah. So how do you maintain and make sure you're not micromanagement, but still understanding what's happening in the company? We have a lot of touch points. We don't want to overburden people with a lot of meetings. It's a fine point. So we'll touch base with certain teams every day for 15 minutes, do stand-ups, understand where people are. We kind of live on Slack. So the idea is, how do we do like asynchronous work? Because like when you're in an office, everything's synchronous. How do we document things and go back and forth on our ideas? So what we do is that we write a lot of stuff down. What we say is we try to get away from oral tradition and go to written tradition. Because everybody says, hey, the Bible said, this is the story of the Bible, but we, I want to see what's written there because that's what we could do. Because what happens is if it's all oral and a story, it's like, <laughs> that was the story that we'd always talk about is that to understand the story, you have to read the code and see how the story progressed, but that doesn't scale, right? When that person leaves, the story left with them. And as we do this, a lot of what we do is a lot of research. We're looking at different SaaS products. We write everything down and we will meet, we will discuss the documents and then we'll do the work, but we make sure that we understand it. Okay. Let's talk about stress a bit. As a founder, you probably have a lot of stress. We all do. And how are you dealing with, not failures, but sometimes you have bad days. So like, how do you basically recoup yourself, meditate, running, doing something else? I think one big thing that I did is, even though I'm drinking mate, is I, I really cut down on my caffeine intake. And I s- try to sleep more, right? So I sleep with a CPAP machine because I have sleep apnea and I track my sleep, but really just to make sure that I'm getting, making sure that I get good, healthy sleep. That's been a big thing, like not to stay up past midnight. That's been a big thing. Cut back on my social media. I think that's been a huge one. That the tiny think, steps to overall improve. and Yeah, to overall improve, right? To keep your head more focused and definitely go to the gym and work out. I think it's really critical to do something physical. I used to run in high school, so I have a love-hate relationship with running, but I'll go to the gym. But I think that's important to do something and I used to do yoga. I'm not, I don't do it right now, but I think for someone to unplug and to think about breathing or walking or looking at life and nature, we spend so much of our time in front of a monitor looking at these abstract things. Like when I look at it, I'm not building anything physical. It's not like I'm coming out of the factory with a shoe or a dresser that I built with my hands. Like we're putting bits and bites together. It's important to detach from that and to feel nature and the world. And I think that kind of helps me regulate. Also eat healthy and eat at a regular cycle. It sounds silly, but I think that's critical stuff. The food that you take in, that's all very vital. It's a good idea. So it's interesting because when you speak with people about this, they usually say they do something when they 
something happens, like meditate, running, but all of them try to do some kind of sport all the time. You're basically yeah. saying, yes, I can do stuff when I feel bad, but if I do small things all the time, then I'm going to get to this point when I feel bad because I'm always trying to do proactive maintenance. Yeah. I, I think that the social media stuff is has been critical. Unfortunately, I've gotten back on Twitter, but I'm going to have to delete it soon because it's just too, I don't know, it's just... Life is hard enough and great, there's great. so much, I don't want to be inside of that algorithm bubble. <laughs> I don't want to get out of it. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, hard life and failures. This mm-hmm. is the part we talk about the dark side when we speak about stuff that went wrong. So the goods could be, you already mentioned failures with raising money that was hard, maybe bad POCs. Tell us some stories, you don't have to tell names, about stuff that didn't go as you expected and you maybe le- learned a lesson or it was just bad. Yeah, no, I think that there's definitely a lot of lot of lessons, right? I think that not listening to people, like not taking in advice for things when you let your ego take over, I think that's a critical thing, right? Because as founders, you have a thesis and you stick to it and you think you're right and the world is wrong. So you have to have a little bit of hubris and a little bit of ego and you think you can't do no wrong. And eventually the world will let you know that. And either you're going to learn that lesson or you're not. So I think that's been hard. I think something else has been making the wrong hires. That's always super hard to do. And you have to fix that problem pretty quickly. So that's definitely something that is always hard because there's a sort of you're trying to move the business forward. And sometimes it's not the right fit for people because I think one big thing is the companies go through phases. In the beginning phase, it's crazy and it's it's insane. So you need insane people, <laughs> like people that could work with chaos. And it's going to be, hey, things are changing, but the reason it's changing is that we're trying to close this deal. Obviously, you have to do that in the right way. You don't want to pivot a company and chase a bad deal that doesn't happen. That's bad stuff too. I've seen that where not now, but at a previous company, we chased a big customer and that's all we did. And we never got the deal. And that was it. That didn't work out. So that was a real hard lesson to learn. Some of the stuff that I'm saying about our mantras and some of that stuff comes from lessons where we didn't put emphasis on things like documentation and like those kind of details. And all of a sudden, every time we had an engagement, we needed two or three people on the call to help them out. That doesn't scale either because you start thinking about what's the cost of that call. Yes. And and people don't think about that. So I'm going to get five people to meet all the time. So understanding that and trying to manage that is is critical. So I've been in places where I forgot what the rule was. If there's more than six people in the in a meeting, it's just it's not going to produce anything. And again, this is in a technical way. You could speak to a group, but to have an interactive meeting, you want to keep it tight. Things like that. Other things too is I've seen where you get the wrong customer. You get a customer that pushes you in the wrong direction where a lot of companies don't know how to say no. So they'll say yes to everything you. And and again, this is depends on where the company is, right? But in the beginning, you have limited resources, time is precious. And if you get a customer that says, I need you to build this, 
And it's really like a one-off that you won't be able to sell for anyone else or an integration or whatever it is, a feature that really only one person because of what they have, or you could do something else that's going to have more impact. You have to make those hard choices. Like we're going to go with the more impact thing, the work that's going to give us more bang for our buck. So unfortunately, sometimes people are just chasing certain deals and they don't have that visibility. And I've seen that happen too. Smart. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much. A lot of good advice. Time flew very, very fast today. And yes. I'm sure people appreciate your advice and your ideas and what to do and what not to do. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. It was a great time. And I really thank enjoyed you. it. Everybody that's listening, thank you very much. And catch you on the next episode. Thank you, everyone.